turn together for the very last time to the book of Philippians. We'll be finishing the book of Philippians this morning. Next week, we'll have the the privilege of hearing from Pastor Carol as he brings us God's Word. And then we will together turn to Daniel in weeks to come. Our text this morning is the end of the fourth chapter, verses 20 through 23. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. Philippians chapter 4. To God, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us ask for his blessing upon it in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that you would use this, your word, that you would use it in our lives to strengthen us, to teach us, to guide us, to show us the path of life and to keep us upon it. Lord, we ask also that you would use your word to remind us of our need for you, that you alone are our God. We ask all of this in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. To finish here this morning in the book of Philippians, and it may be that as I read the text or as you looked at it this morning or even just now, you might have perhaps thought to yourself, well, Fred does preach verse by verse through a book. I guess he's got to do something with these verses. It's sort of the goodbye of this letter. You know, this is the sort of end of a letter that oftentimes, as we're reading through our Bibles in a year, for example, and we're trying to get through four or five chapters a day, we sort of skim over quickly. But what I want you to see this morning is that Paul is being very intentional at the end of this letter. And so we're going to be intentional at looking at it that he is being intentional not only in tying up this whole letter, but in also tying up this this mini-series that we've been looking at in terms of the marks of the church. I'd like to just take a minute to remind you of that, of what we've been looking at. You remember back at the very end of chapter 3, we started by saying that a church, according to the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is to be a church that is Christ-focused. It is to be a church that follows Christ, that points others to Christ, that rejects the system that the world has put up, and that is waiting for Jesus Christ to return. Everything that the church does is focused upon the Lord Jesus. The church is also called, we saw, to be steadfast, to cling to God, to cling to God's gospel, and then also to cling to each other. Being steadfast means being ready. 
and relying upon God to do His work in each of our lives and in our lives corporately. We then saw that being a church is to be a peacemaking church. It's to be a church where we are willing to make peace, even though sometimes that comes at a cost, even though that's difficult. It's a challenge to us. And we can't just be peacemakers. We must be those who are willing to take efforts to maintain peace in our midst. It's what it means to be a community of peace. And then we saw that the church is not only a church where a place where peace is made, but where peace is found. Being a peaceful church. And that means, you'll recall, preparing our minds. Not being anxious about what is around us, what circumstances swirl around us. But rather we look and find God's provision, especially in prayer. And that God himself guides us as we go through life. The fifth thing that we saw was that the church is to be excellent-minded. And we saw that that meant thinking biblically. It meant growing biblically. It meant being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It meant not only training our minds, but training our lives to follow after the Lord Jesus. And then last week we saw that as difficult as it might be, the church is to be a content church. That means that we are to know and trust in God's providence. And that being content gives us a freedom to be a blessing to others. It gives us a freedom to grow and a freedom to see God's blessings. And so in the first six sections of this seven-part mini-series, we see a tall order for the church. I trust that you, like me, have been challenged by all of these tasks that Paul has placed in front of us. And perhaps, especially as I've just recounted all of them, you've taken a step back and said, well, that's all well and good, but how do I do all that? How do I not be anxious? How do I focus on Jesus all the time? How am I joyful all the time? How am I a peacemaker? How am I content? And the answer comes here in this section that we might be tempted to skip by. Because you see, often that is the case for us in our weakness as Christians. We see so many tasks ahead of us, so many things to do that God has laid out in His Word, and we miss the fact that we can only do those things by God's grace. And that God gives us His grace that we might do those things, that we might follow after Him. And so what I would like us to see this morning in these final greetings from Paul are three things. First, I would like us to see a grace from God. A grace that comes from God. And then secondly, that will lead us to a grace with each other. We receive grace from God. And that allows us to show grace with each other. And then finally, we will see that we need grace to glorify God. So we see that we receive grace from God. And we spread grace with each other. And it leads to glorifying God by grace. Well, let's take a look then here at what the Lord would have us see. First, in grace from God. When I mention the word grace, one of the first things that should come to your mind as you study the Scriptures is that grace is the agent of change of our Lord. Grace is what changes us. It is not our habits. It is not our diligence. It is not our knowledge. 
what changes us, what allows all of these other things to be effective, is the grace of God. And that's the conclusion that Paul wants us to see, not only in this section, but in this entire letter. It's very intentional that Paul has placed this here. You see, everything else that he has said depends upon the grace of God. Everything else that he has called us to as a church depends upon having the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we think about this here for a minute, it makes sense, especially when Paul writes to the Philippians. You see, Paul's audience is a reminder to us of our need for grace daily. Turn back with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 1. Perhaps one of the challenges of going verse by verse, section by section through a letter, is we forget the beginning, because it's been a while since we've been there. It was the first week of April, about six months ago. But notice how Paul begins this letter. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. And so we see from beginning to end, turn back to chapter 4, from beginning to end, Paul is calling these dear people at Philippi saints. Now, who are they? Perhaps as you have grown up in 20th or 21st century America, you have a certain view of the word saint. When someone says that, you picture sort of a yellow cartoon halo around someone's head as they walk. Perhaps especially with all the talk recently of the Nobel Peace Prize, you've been reminded of someone like Mother Teresa. And you think, well, to be a saint, you have to go live amongst lepers and, and eat the worst of food and, and not care about disease and sickness. But what Paul is saying here is that his entire audience, that entire church at Philippi, are saints. They're ordinary people like you and me. Remember who they were? Battle-hardened Roman soldiers who retired to live in Philippi. A businesswoman without a man that she could count on who gathered together with ladies for prayer by the river because there were not enough men to lead them in a synagogue. Her name was Lydia. Perhaps you remember a small girl who was dominated by others, abused, taken advantage of, used for the financial gain of others. That small slave girl that Paul converted by the power of the word of God. Or maybe you remember that servant of the state, that Philippian jailer who was in such despair at hearing that the doors had opened after the earthquake, that he was about to kill himself. These are just a sample of people who are at the church at Philippi. You see, saints, dear ones, is all of us. We are all saints in Christ Jesus. Each and every one of us, from the least to the greatest, from the oldest to the youngest, there is no special category of saint. Everyone is a saint in Christ Jesus. These are all people that share one thing in common. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Word of God applied to their lives, they were all changed. You see, these soldiers gave up their cynicism. Lydia focused her life upon building the church. This slave girl threw off her shackles and was free. The jailer gave up his despair and they all followed after Jesus. Just like you. Just like me. 
You see, grace changes us, but the real truth here is that we have no hope apart from grace. It's only the grace of God that could take a slave girl and free her. It's only the grace of God that can save a man from killing himself. It's only the grace of God that can change a community. This is why the Bible says in John chapter 3, you must be born again. It doesn't say it would be a good thing. It doesn't say you may want to think about. It doesn't say you would be wise to take it under advisement to be born again. No. Jesus begins at the beginning. To have a life, you must have a birth. And to have a birth, it must come from above. And so if you are here this morning and you have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then Paul here at the end of his letter calls you to do so. To partake of grace. To know grace. To know the change in your life that grace brings. And you see, what happens here is everyone who has been changed by grace is all bound together. Do you notice who Paul greets? He greets every saint in Christ Jesus. All of their lives have been changed forever. None of them is an outlier. They are all saints changed by grace. But you see, grace doesn't just begin and then send us off on our journey. No, grace continues to mold us into the image of Jesus Christ. This is another aspect of thinking about Christians as saints. The word saint means holy one, but it actually gets that meaning from being set apart. To be a saint is not simply to have the cleanest mouth in the room or the most modest clothing or the most memorization of the scriptures. To be a saint is to be actually and really set apart by God. God, by his grace, sets us apart from sin, sets us apart from death, sets us apart to a life of righteousness. You see, to be a saint is to be set apart from sin and to be set apart to God. That's what it means to be a saint. That God, by his grace, is the source of our very life. You see, if we think about it, we don't just need to be made alive. We don't just need to be born again. We need to be kept alive, don't we? It's not enough simply to be born. What do we pray for when we hear someone is expecting? We pray for a safe birth, don't we? And we pray for a safe birth and for strength and health for both mother and baby. It's not any different in the Christian life. You see, it's not enough that we breathe our first breath of air when the doctor gives us that swat on the behind. We must continue to have air to breathe. Without air, we die. And so it is for the Christian. We need grace to cross over that great chasm that cannot be crossed in any other way. To go from death to life. From darkness to light. From sin to righteousness. But once we have crossed over, we need to continue to have the grace that God gives to keep us alive. This is how God leads us. This is how God directs us. We need to remember, to be reminded, even as Paul is reminding the Philippians of their need for grace here, that as much as we did not deserve 
God's forgiveness. As much as we did not deserve in our sinful selves to be born again, so we do not deserve to be kept alive. So we do not deserve to walk after the Lord. We only do it by the grace of God. We only do it by Him working out His purposes in us. God, by His grace, is our source of life. And we need this grace to go from day to day. Notice what Paul says here in his very last words. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, we look at that and we may wonder why Paul uses this odd phrase, with your spirit. In other places, Paul will use the phrase, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. As a matter of fact, Paul uses this very often. In almost every single one of his letters, he ends this way. Why would Paul use the phrase, with your spirit here? I think it's because Paul wants us to see that we need grace, and it's not just an add-on. It is essential to our being. We have to have it in the wholeness of our being. Our minds, our wills, our hearts, our emotions all need to be renewed by grace. We need grace to know forgiveness. We need grace to have strength. We need grace to have boldness, to testify to the goodness of God in our lives. All of the things that Paul has described throughout this entire letter, we can only do by grace. And it's one of the reasons why this phrase is a constant in Paul's letters. Over and over again, we see him wishing grace upon the people of God. We see it at the end of Romans. We see it at the end of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We see it at the end of Philippians and Colossians and 1st Thessalonians and 2nd Timothy and Philemon. Whether he's writing to elders or to individuals or to the whole church, Paul knows that they could only live the Christian life by grace. So the question then comes to you. If grace is a constant in Paul's life, is it a constant in yours? Do you look day upon day for the work of God in your life to get you through the day? Do you begin the day with prayer to Him? Seeking an outpouring, not just a meager measure, but an outpouring of His grace upon your life. Do you go to work relying upon Him? Asking Him to give you grace that you might have a clear head, that you might work hard, that you might have good relationships. You see, this is why we need grace. And grace really does work in unbelievable ways. This should be an encouragement to us, and it should allow us to encourage others, because really, grace really is amazing. That's cliche, isn't it? But if you think about the one who wrote that song, who was a salesman in human beings, one of the cruelest slave captains ever, and who was changed by the work of God, by the power of grace. If you think about that story, does it remind you that that's one of your favorite hymns? But does it also remind you That we have hope. That the John Newtons of the world can be changed by grace. That grace works in an unbelievable way. And Paul reminds us of this in a a very brief fashion. Look with me, if you would, 
at verse 22. Again, it just seems to be a greeting. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, that may seem like Bob and Aunt Martha say hello. But really, that's the equivalent of a nuclear bomb dropped here. The saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now, Caesar's household was not like my household. My household has six of us in it. Two big people and four littler people. Caesar's household had hundreds, thousands in it. Because it wasn't just his immediate family. It was everyone that worked for Caesar. It was the guards who guarded him. The secretaries who took his notes. The cooks who made his meals. The people who cleaned his room. The people that did his laundry. The people that helped to run the upper levels of government. They were all part of Caesar's household. And what Paul says here is, those who are in Caesar's household, they greet you because they're saints. That takes us back to recall something else we saw in chapter 1, doesn't it? You remember I told you that Paul said that this is this, this great thing has happened to me. I'm in prison. And it's an even better thing. I have chains on me. And they've chained me to a guard. And they rotate the guards through. Isn't this fabulous? And you remember we looked and we said, what? And he said, because I have a captive audience for the gospel. Eight hours a day I get to preach at one guy. And then they replace him with another one. I get to preach at him for eight hours. And he can't go anywhere. And they don't issue earplugs in the Roman army. And what Paul is saying here is, not just did I have the opportunity to do this. Not just was I commanded to preach the gospel. Look at the fruit. Could you imagine when they get to the end of this letter? Some of the Philippians who might still be uneasy after having heard the first part. Yeah, well, I guess he would get to preach to some guards. Wait a minute. He's converted some. Do you ever get that when you get a letter from a church planner you're supporting or a missionary or someone who has moved away and is in a new church and you hear about the great things that are happening that God is doing, bringing people to the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthening people? That's what Paul is doing here. He's telling them the gospel really has advanced. And he's telling them that conversions happen in the most unlikely of places. It is said, I don't know if it's true, often the case with old, old history. It is said that Nero's wife herself became a Christian before she died. You know Nero? The crazy guy that killed Christians and fiddled while Rome burned? That even in his very family, the power of grace was seen. You see, this is miraculous. It is astounding. It is amazing because in the midst of the cult of emperor worship, in the midst of all the pressures of money and power and status, the gospel of grace thrusts these all aside and makes children of God. Now, the other thing you need to realize is it hasn't been a long time. It hasn't even been 30 years since the death of a man on a cross in Palestine. And now already, conversions are seen in the most important place in the world. Does that give you hope for the power of grace that's amazing? We have missionaries here this morning who are going to Mexico. We have a missionary here who's been in Mexico. Mexico is a very, very difficult place to work. 
the power of false religion, of works combined with totemism, with superstition, is powerful. But do you have hope that the power of amazing grace will break through and will be seen and churches will be built and people will be strengthened and the church of God will flourish in a place like Mexico? You should. Because Paul says it's what we're to expect. This is the power of amazing grace. But a wonderful thing is grace doesn't just stop with me. Grace doesn't just enter my life and change me. No, grace changes all of our lives. You see, there isn't just grace that comes from God for me. There's also grace that we have with each other. Grace permeates the church of God. See what Paul says here. There is a method to his language here where he says, greet every saint and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. He sends his greetings and greetings are important. They set the tone, don't they? You meet someone in America, what's the first thing that you do? Hello. And you shake their hand. Or perhaps if you're a bit younger, you you take your fist and you hit their fist. But there is a way in which we begin that relationship. Greetings are important to set the tone. If you say hello to someone and they don't say hello back, you're taken aback. It's not just, well, maybe they... Are they mad at me? Is there a problem? Are they upset? And what Paul says here is actually even stronger than our hello. It's not just a howdy or hi, y'all. No, it is an encouragement. It is an affection, a desire for them to be well. It's a very specific kind of word. Paul uses it many, many, many times in the Scriptures. He uses it in nearly every letter. And in Romans, he uses it more than 20 times, greeting folks. He is using it here to encourage the Philippians that he is concerned for them, that he wants them to grow in grace. We have good evidence to think that these last few verses were actually written out by Paul in his own hand. Some of you may know that when Paul wrote a letter, he used uh, a secretary. The fancy Greek word is an amanuensis, someone he dictated to. But at the end of letters, Paul would write something in his own hand. And we know from Galatians that it was his habit to write big letters. Now, whether he had to because he couldn't see well, or whether he was like John Hancock with the Paul. But when he wrote on that letter... You would look at it and you would say, this is from Paul. This wasn't just fired off by some undersecretary. This was from the apostle himself. He means everything he says. Have you ever gotten a form letter? You ever gotten a form letter that didn't even have the form stamp of the signature? It just had the blank? It's one of those things that makes you, again, be a bit put off. And it's why many of us appreciate the lost art of letter writing, because it shows time and effort was placed into it. It means more than just hello. But Paul says hello not just to the important people. Look who Paul says hello to. He greets every saint in Christ Jesus. Now, if you recall back 
you could turn again back to chapter 1, you'll see that even though Paul singles out the elders and the deacons, he also writes this letter to all the saints. So this is addressed to the entire church. But the way he finishes this is a bit particular. He doesn't say to all the saints. He says to each saint. He individualizes it. It's not just an encouragement to grace to them as a body, but as individuals within the body. Every single Christian is important to Paul. His love for them is the same. He doesn't say, well, you know, I really like those ones who study their Bibles. The other ones, well, you know, not so much. You know, I'd love you more if you prayed more. You know, if you wore a nicer shirt to church, I'd like you more. No. Paul says, you are all saints in Christ Jesus. You are all the objects of my love and affection. Every parent understands this. It is one of the most difficult tasks of a parent, day in, day out, to show and prove to their children that they love them all the same. Maybe not in the same way, using the same things, but that they love them all equally. That's what Paul is saying here. Each and every one of us is permeated by grace so that we love one another, we serve one another. And Paul directs this to every single one of them. Now, why does Paul do this? He wants to lay the groundwork for something that he's going to say. And that is by impressing upon them that he has a relationship with each and every one of them and that each and every one of them is important, he begins to describe to them that relationships in the church are important. And for relationships to work, we need grace, don't we? Look at what he says. He says, the brothers who are with me greet you. Now, who are the brothers? Some of us use that term of endearment for those in the church. We say, you know, the brothers said to me. But I want you to get behind here the brothers. Who's there with Paul? Well, first of all, Timothy. One of the leaders in the church. One of the most important men in the church after Paul. Epaphroditus who had traveled from Philippi to serve Paul to bring the gift from the Philippians, who was a leader in the Philippian church. We have it from history and tradition that it is very likely that at Rome at this time, both Luke and Mark were present. Half of the gospel writing team is present in Rome. And these are the brothers. You know, just a couple of guys hanging around. Paul is saying to the Philippians that all who are here, we who are out on the front lines, we appreciate what you are doing. You are important to us. And he wants to draw the Philippians close into relationship with them. He says we need a kind of community that transcends boundaries, that goes beyond ordinary relationships. Relationships are important. That's why the brothers that are with Paul Greet the Philippians. It's also why all the saints greet you, verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. You see, Paul says it's not just those who are in leadership send their greetings. Everyone here at Rome sends their greetings at well. There is an old custom that is not honored much today in our churches where there is so much movement 
and so much change and so many people moving from one state to the other. Centuries ago, when people tended to be born, live, and die within about a 10-mile radius, if someone went to another place, there would be a time before the worship would begin where someone would stand up and say, the saints from Dallas greet you. The saints from Kansas City greet you. The saints from Sacramento greet you. And we would send greetings back and forth. We do that to some extent now privately. Often during our coffee hour, we'll ask people where they're from. But you see, there is a sense of community here in the church that transcends place. We are not just Christ Church in Katy. We are a part of God's universal church. We are in community with those who are suffering in China and in India, who are being persecuted in Africa, who have just heard the gospel in Central America. We build up a community by the grace of God. And so all of the saints here in Rome send their greetings. You see, Paul wants the Philippians to know that the Romans know about them and they care about them. Now, if you think that's not important, think to yourself about what we do every Sunday night. Every Sunday night, one of the things that we do is we have a time for prayer requests, don't we? And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the prayer requests get out of hand. We don't go with the normal time that's allotted to them, eight or ten minutes. Sometimes we go twenty minutes. Because you can't stop people from raising their hands. And you just keep going and going and going. Why? Because we want others to know our needs. And we want to know the needs of others so we can be praying for them. We want to know each other so that we can serve each other, so that we can love each other. That's what's going on here. Paul says, to be a church that is filled with grace is to know one another, to build these kinds of relationships. So the question then comes to you. Are you building these kinds of relationships? Is church a place where you come in, where you worship God, you're more or less satisfied with the order of worship that's placed up in front of you, and then you go home? Or is church a place where your friends are? Where you can't wait to get there Sunday night, kids, because you're going to play Uno afterwards with some of your best friends. Where the ladies are dying to share recipes. Where the guys want to talk about the latest college football game. Where we want to talk about our work, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, to be with one another. You see, that is the work of grace. In a church, this is the kind of relationships that we need to be building to be an effective church. Well, grace comes from God. And we need grace with each other. But in a sense, each of these are secondary ends. There is a primary end. We need grace to glorify God. You see, because saints are known not just as saints because of the change that they haven't experienced. They're not just known as saints because of the relationships they have together. They're known by saints by their worship of the true and living God. We need to be changed by grace, grown by grace, and encouraged in grace that we might worship the living God. 
And this is not just something that we do corporately. Worship is not just what happens Sunday morning, Sunday evening. Are you worshiping the Lord God in your private time? Do you worship Him in your car as you're driving on the freeway? Do you worship Him as you have a break at lunch? Do you worship God in your family? Is worship just something that happens as we all come together? Or are you engaging in the biblical pattern of time-honored family worship? That could be formal, where you have a piece of paper each night, and you go through and you sing a song, and you let one of the kids request a hymn, and you pray a prayer, and you take turns reading Scripture. Or it could be something as simple as an additional 15 minutes around the dinner table, where you read the Scriptures. And you ask each other how you can be praying for each other. This is what we need grace for, to worship God. The question then comes to us. How can we worship and glorify this God? I mean, after all, we are weak. If you're like me, you don't pop out of bed, lunge over and grab your Bible and read your daily scripture. You hit the snooze button once. Maybe twice, depending on the day. You get out of bed a little bit groggy. If you're like me, you make sure that a good eight or ten cups of coffee is made. You see, these are not things that come to us naturally in ourselves. They come to us supernaturally by the grace of God. The only way to worship God is to be empowered by God. But it's not just the empowerment that we need. How do we know who God is? How do we know whether we should worship just the Father, or the Father and the Son, or all three, Father, Son, and Spirit? How are we to know how to end our prayers? How are we to know what should be in our prayers? The only way that we can properly fulfill our end by worshiping God is to know Him and to know Him from His Word. How did you get this? Did you think it up? Write down good thoughts, deep thoughts. Maybe it just dropped out of the sky. Maybe you were digging in your backyard and you, this would be a nice book to follow. No. We have these scriptures because of the grace of God, don't we? Because God graciously inspired the writers of the scriptures. Because God has graciously preserved it. Because God has graciously made it plentiful. Think about the grace to God, of God to you. How many Bibles are in your house? We have enough Bibles that my youngest son brought two to worship this morning. He brought his regular Bible and his mini Bible. In my office, I have dozens. I'm sure you do as well. You have study Bibles. You have different translations. We have Bibles on the computer. We can get any version we want, wherever we want to be. This is the grace of God giving us His Word that we might know Him. And He doesn't stop with just giving us His Word. He lightens up His Word. He illumines it for our minds so that we have those aha moments. You know those, moms who school, when your kids get it and their eyes light up and you think all of that work was worth it. That is what it is like to have the Word of God opened up to us. You see, we need to know God. 
and we can only know him by grace. And to know God and to worship God is the highest end of man. The highest end of man is not conversion. That is a secondary end. The highest purpose of the church is not missions. Right? It is not. The highest purpose of the church is the worship of the true and living God. And as John Piper says, missions exists because worship doesn't. We have missions to bring worship. To bring out worship by grace. And that isn't just sending people off to Mexico. That's in the bedroom of your youngest at home. That's in your cubicle with the coworker. That's at the mom's group down the street. We need the grace of God to bring the word of God that God might be truly glorified as he ought. This is the work of the living God. Bringing grace to God's people. Notice how Paul finishes this section. In verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. And then what does he say? Amen. Is that your goal in life? That your God and your Father would be glorified forever and ever? If it is, then all God's people said, Amen. Amen. 